0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. And in this season of Talking Theology, it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today, exploring the relationship between science and faith. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo, and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What do people mean when they talk about science and religion, and why do those assumptions matter? Where does the science and religion conflict myth come from, and how is it perpetuated today? How does exploring our humanity help us navigate the significance of science and faith? And why do the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus matter for our approach to science and faith? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Nick Spencer. Nick is Senior Fellow at Theos Think Tank, where he leads their work on science and religion. He's the author of several books, including The Political Samaritan and The Evolution of the West. He presented the BBC Radio 4 series, The Secret History of Science and Religion, and hosts the podcast, Reading Our Times. And our title today is, What's the story of science and faith? And what's it got to do with being human today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Spencer, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you for having me. Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you
1: wouldn't mind, and in particular, what your current role and work involves. Um, I'm a senior fellow at the Christian think tank, Theos. Uh, I've been in that role just for a few years, but I've been with Theos more or less since we were founded in November 2006, a month after The God Delusion was published, um, a fact to which we may return in our conversation. Um, I do lots of different things in the senior fellow role, but the last two years plus, really, I've been working more or less exclusively on science and religion.
0: So, as this kind of role has kind of involved, I know you've looked at the, the intersections between Christianity, politics, and society. You've had a particular focus on the intellectual development journey of Western thought. But as you say, in recent years, you've looked at this specific question of the history and science and religion. What, what, what apart from the God delusion, or perhaps it was the God delusion? What, what? Where did that sort of flame of interest start?
1: Well, I. Been long interested in science and religion from, I guess, from the 1990s, but professionally the spark was in 2008-9 in advance of the big Darwin anniversary in 2009, the 150th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species and the 200th anniversary of his birth. And at Theos, we did a big project called Rescuing Darwin then, looking at the way in which Darwin had become the poster boy for aggressive atheism and how... That was not fair either to him or indeed to his work and I maintained a kind of professional interest in the subject after that and then came back to it probably 2017 or so roughly with a a twin project really one looking at the history of science and religion that resulted in a Radio 4 series that was broadcast a couple of years ago and the second is a big three-year Templeton project, Templeton-funded project in partnership with our friends at the Faraday Institute, which is, if you like, looking at the present of science and religion. So I have both my kind of uh, historical interest, which is kind of, is perpetually kind of running in the background, and uh, a current interest, looking at the, the current landscape of science and religion. And
0: so what corners does that get you looking at in terms of the looking at the intersection between science and
1: religion? Give us a sense about the sort of things that you find yourself exploring. Well, it's everything, which is both a joy and a challenge. The premise of the project at the moment is that it doesn't really make much sense to know if people think that science and religion are compatible or incompatible or non-overlapping magisteria or whatever else, unless you have some idea of what people are talking about when they're talking about science and when they're talking about religion. Neither of those terms is self-evident. In fact, on the contrary, each is almost impossible to define. And so the project looks at what people understand science to be, what they understand religion to be. And in the light of that disaggregation, where are the touch points? Where are the touch points of compatibility? Where are the touch points of tension? So for example, it's as much about epistemology, how we know what we know about the world as it is with underlying metaphysics. Do you adhere to a naturalistic? or a supernaturalistic ontology, is there any clear distinction between those two things? It's as much about specific disciplines. What do you understand evolution by natural selection to mean in terms of the directionality of life on Earth? It can be about the history and underlying constants of the cosmos. It's about ethical issues. Basically, it's about everything. And we're trying to get a little bit of clarity into a debate that has heretofore mushed all those things together, called one of them science, the other of them religion, and then come up with a slightly simplistic answer.
0: I'm struck by the narrative that was certainly there at the beginning of Covid, which talked about follow the science as if science was a kind of simple, monolithic easy-to-read discipline. certainly sounds like one of the things you're doing is actually just interrogating that much more closely as well as doing the same thing with religion.
1: Uh, We are, yes. I mean, there's an irony in that the majority of this particular project has coincided with COVID and that has hovered in the background of lots of the expert interviews we've been doing. But that follow the science thing is really fascinating. I'm I'm also on the back of the BBC Radio 4 programme writing a big history of science and religion, which will be coming out in in a year or so. And again, there are lots of fascinating details here, but here's one of the crucial ones that's often dismissed. The reason why science and religion clashed when they clashed, particularly in the 19th century, was primarily about social authority. You go back to the beginning of the 19th century, the people doing science in this country were Anglican clerics. The word scientist is coined in 19, 1834. The discipline is professionalised throughout the 40s and 50s, so when Wilberforce and Huxley famously clash in Oxford in 1860, it's as much to do with the fact that Huxley is indignant that an amateur like Wilberforce should be pronouncing on a matter like this. And even in a recently discovered transcript of that particular debate, Huxley has a go about why they are even discussing this issue in front of a popular audience, because you shouldn't really cast your pearls before swine. Now, you cast that forward a hundred years or so. Now, science is the main basis of social authority. That's why so many politicians are very keen to say, follow the science, because you don't argue with that in the same way as a couple of hundred years ago, you wouldn't really have argued with follow the clerics. So much of this is around the sociological structures of authority that pertain both to science and religion.
0: We might come back to that later on, but let's just stand back at the moment and look at that big question of science and religion. As you've said, it's often used as kind of two beasts lugging at each other on the other side of the, the ring, if a rather mixed metaphor. But go back to kind of Huxley, who thought it was unfair to be discussing this in the presence of kind of amateurs or lay people. And yet I know your work has been concerned with communicating this fascinating relationship between science and religion to a much wider audience than the specialists. Why do you think this relationship between science and religion that you've been researching is, is of relevance not only for every Christian, but every thinking human being?
1: I think you can answer that, I guess, on various different levels. I mean, in one sense, you've answered your own question by describing us as thinking human beings. We are creatures that think, we are creatures that use language and communicate. And therefore, this kind of conversation is as natural to us as, you know, singing or dancing or drinking or, or, or whatever else. It's what we do. That's, I guess, the underlying reason. There are more specific and immediate reasons, I guess, particularly around the fact that for 30 or so years now, the prospect of manipulating life has become a reality. And that forces on you two sets of questions. The obvious ethical questions, what is right? What are the right actions to do here? But underneath that, the ontological question, what's life in the first instance anyway? What does life consist in? Is it endlessly manipulable? And if it is manipulable to any degree, in which direction? To what ends? There are both there are both scientific and religious perspectives on that debate, in the same way as there are scientific and philosophical perspectives on that debate. And a lot of the rhetoric around the last thirty years or so has sought to narrow those perspectives to a single legitimate perspective, the kind of follow the science perspective or we can do it, so we should do it kind of perspective, mm-hmm. a sort of techno-utopian perspective that is often associated with um, sort of Silicon Valley type mm. me- mentality. But that is to flatten a very, very complex debate that, as I said, we are naturally oriented to, and in the current climate, as we are increasingly considering the developments of artificial intelligence, is only going to become more urgent and significant.
0: In your radio series... And it sounds like in the forthcoming book, this, in this radio series was The Secret History of Science and Religion. You offered a, what I thought was a compelling assessment of the various historical myths that have fueled this kind of two boxes in the ring, this conflict narrative. Which of the myths did you find most fascinating? And perhaps tell us about this and uh, why it's a myth at all.
1: The big myth is that historically the two have always been at war with one another. That is down to two significant histories that were published, one in the 1870s, one in the 1890s, by um, American scholars, um, which popularised the metaphor of warfare, or in one case, conflict, and used it as the controlling metaphor through which they interpreted the entire history of science and religion, going back to the Babylonians. It was effectively a beast of its time. And for various reasons that I won't bore you with, it it was heavily motivated by a certain degree of anti-Catholicism. But it captured the public imagination, not least because, whilst it's not true, there's enough truth in it for it to become believable. And it then coloured the entire history of science and religion. So Galileo was read as the prime example of science and religion conflicts. Darwin, Wilberforce, Huxley the Scopes trial, so on and so forth, they become motifs in the much larger theme of the ongoing war of science and religion. But as Peter Harrison, a particularly brilliant Australian has pointed out, science and religion are relatively fluid terms. They only settled in their modern meaning at the end of the 19th century. It makes no sense to talk about the war of science and religion before that time. And even if you go back to historical terms, science being natural philosophy religion being close to to theology or faith or whatever it is. there is, there isn't a particular conflict. So the big myth that's exploded was that there was just an ongoing perpetual warfare of science and religion. And within that, you begin to explode smaller myths about, well, the idea that Copernicus de humans and that really upset people. It didn't, fundamentally. The idea that the Galileo trial was all about, specifically about astronomy. No, it was about a great deal more than that. The idea that the early fellows of the Royal Society were antagonistic to religion. No, no, they weren't. They were antagonistic to sectarianism and they had every right to be after having lived through the 1640s and 50s. Lots and lots of little myths that get exploded on the way.
0: I wonder, was that myth, that big myth, so attractive at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century because it gave an easy way of challenging the prevailing structures of authority that were religious at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. In other words, it suggested it gave a way of saying religion doesn't or shouldn't have the authority that it's traditionally occupied.
1: Yes, it certainly did that. The 19th century is a very, very strange period. Owen Chadwick, in his brilliant two-volume history of the Victorian Church, makes the point that, you know, Naturally, you would assume 1900 is more secular than 1837. And in many ways it was, except for the fact that actually it was more sincerely religious, the culture, at least British culture, in 1900 than it was in the 1830s or so. And he goes through the the various cabinets in the 1830s and 1900s, and the cabinet of 1900s is much more religious. So it's not as if science was sweeping religion aside all the way through the 19th century, but it was a basis for an alternative social authority that did manage to push religion's historic role as the basis of social authority aside. So it is increasingly becoming a base of public authority as well as just simply being a practice of finding out about reality.
0: And in the series you made this move of kind of shifting the focus away from the questions of science versus or science and religion. And you kind of focused in on on the key question about the differences in how we understand humanity how we understand what it is to be human and that the fact that that's at the really at the heart and you mentioned that earlier in terms of what is human life about are we manipulable or not and you focus on this distinction between whether we are something or someone just tell us more about why for you that gets us to the nub
1: of the if not conflict then certainly dialogue so for two reasons i suppose the first is that in my historical reading of the interactions between science and religion, all the noise and, if you like, the energy is about how do you interpret the scripture? Do miracles happen? And I'm not denying they were or indeed are important questions, but it's very difficult to absolutely adjudicate on the science and religion question according to those. And in any case, it took a while, but the idea that you shouldn't be reading, say, for example, the opening chapters of Genesis as if they're a proto-scientific textbook was reasonably well established within you know, the 19th century. What was a much more stubborn issue was how you conceive of the human. Is the human material? To what extent is the human material? To what extent is the human exclusively material? It's Very, very difficult. In fact, no one honestly thinks that science. Uh, a methodologically naturalistic uh, enterprise can adjudicate definitively on the existence of otherwise of non-natural objects and god by any serious definition is a non-natural object but what science can do is say humans are only born they're only material they only die they don't have a soul and if you do that you're gradually unpicking at the tapestry of religious belief. Religious people fought very strongly against that, and then the tension point at its kind of deepest came in, okay, what is your view of the human? And to what extent is your view of the human exclusively materialist? Because if it is, the whole paraphernalia of religion falls down. Conversely, if your view of the human is that we are material, but that doesn't preclude a spiritual existence, then you can do both. You can do science and religion. That's the historical analysis. There's a contemporary or more contemporary philosophical analysis, which is in line with the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, which is there are two ways of understanding the world. You can understand that the world is an I engaging with an it, or you can understand the world as an I engaging with a you. Science has to be the former. It's a kind of objective, but I'll put that in inverted commas, form of knowledge. But if you start engaging with other human beings as if they were its, you get into some pretty dark places pretty soon, and you certainly won't have any friends. Human personal interaction and personal knowledge is based on that I-you form of knowledge. And I would argue also that religious knowledge, such so religious behavior, is based on I-you behavior. And that's another example of there being, as it were, more than one layer of understanding reality. You can understand reality as a collection of its or you can understand reality or parts of reality as use as someone rather than something. Again, it's this way of do you have a approach to reality that's sufficiently flexible that allows you to engage with it on different levels.
0: And therefore, the, the, the challenge that uh, a perspective of faith brings is not that there is not deep and significant truth in the reality of material being, but that as an exclusive understanding of what it is to be human, it is inadequate. Is that right?
1: Well, it's absolutely inadequate. I mean, one one of the grimmest stories I tell in in the book is the story of Otto Benga, who was a Congolese, 22-year-old Congolese pygmy, who was taken to America and exhibited in the monkey cage in the Brooklyn Zoo. And very interesting. There was it was a very, very popular exhibit, awful as it is to say, hugely popular exhibit. People said, this is Darwinism. This is evolution. Get used to it. This is a missing link. And other people, and interestingly in particular, the, the, the Black Ministers Association said, absolutely not. Has our race not suffered enough that we are also exhibited alongside the monkeys? And it did so interestingly justify its case by using ideas like the image of God and the soul. Now, they're not scientific terms. They don't mean anything in a scientific lexicon, but they are nonetheless hugely powerful terms pertaining to the inherent dignity of a someone. And if you don't recognize that, like I said, you get into some very dark places. So I think it's absolutely essential to engage with reality as if it is in some regards personal rather than only objective.
0: You mentioned the image of God in relation to um, the story you, told, you tell in the book. I- I'm wondering, at the moment, we've reflected on what religion and what faith in general have to contribute to this complex and, and important question. What are the specifically Christian resources, it may be the image of God, it may be other resources that you think help us engage with the riches of what it is to be human as more than simply material or I it?
1: This is one of those questions where you're, you're tempted to kind of come up with the, the classic Sunday school answer, well, it's Jesus, <laughs> <maybe. laughs> um, isn't which, it? Which can sound trite, um, but nonetheless, I think in this instance, is it is perfectly legitimate. I'm teaching my daughter how to drive at the moment, not very well, because it's not one of those things you can teach very well. In other words, you could know, say you do this and you do this with the clutch, but actually it's only being in the driving seat that you learn. I think it's quite similar with being human. You could give people ethical lessons and guidance and so on and so forth, but it's actually the experience of being human that helps you to learn to be human. I think this is one of the many significances of the incarnation. It's not a series of lectures or moral lessons. It's an experience of being close to someone who was fully human and through whose spirit is fully human with us. So that's the first thing, experiential immersion that is implicit in the incarnation. A second point is that it's in gift. I think human beings are made for gift. Creation is best understood as gift. Ethics, I think, orients around the concept of gifts. The cross is a moment of gift. The Eucharist is an active gift. We are most ourselves when we give ourselves away and putting people in a position where they can give of themselves is extraordinarily powerful because it underlines that they are creatures who are capable of love and self-sacrifice. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm Catholic enough. I'm, I'm, I'm close enough to John Paul II to think that in theory, we can think our way to these truths, but actually, Revelation does help. It's a bit of a shortcut. And I think that is you know, one of the significant gifts that specifically Christian thought can offer to this direct.
0: It's a particular dynamic, isn't it, to the I-U. If I give myself to you, that is a
1: particular kind of, I think, as you say, Christocentric dynamic. It, it is. And I even go further than that. It's become a truism. There is no I without you or there is no I without me. And it is a bit of a bumper sticker now and so on and so forth. But it is nonetheless true for being a bumper sticker in that I'm constituted by other people, just as I constitute other people. There's a brilliant book by a wife called Sue Gerhardt called Why Love Matters, which looks at the baby brain, baby's brain. Babies are essentially external fetuses. They're born with significantly underdeveloped neuronal connections neuronal connections are forming very 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 quickly in the first year or two of birth so that's why those first years are so incredibly important because you're not you you are literally forming the child through relationship and That is a particularly plastic period in our lives, but I don't think it ever truly ends. We are literally perpetually in the business of forming one another. Relational ontology, therefore, I think should lie at the very bottom of all that we do because we are in the process of making one another. And the more I can give of myself to you, the more you become your true self and vice versa. So, you know, it's not that to suggest any sense of the I or the self entirely dissolves into some impersonal, generic existence. But as I'm no Trinitarian theologian, but as I understand certain interpretations of the Trinity, have it, we are We exist in relationship, and only in relationship. If you like, organisms are born, but persons are loved into existence. But
0: organisms are born persons are loved into existence. What a wonderful phrase. You've suggested that there's this very rich, therefore, encounter to be had between science and religion around the question of what it is to be human. Uh, And you've suggested that, that religion has something very distinctive to offer an account of humanity. Where do you think that sort of touches the contemporary debate, the contemporary world of science and religion? You know, where are the things where you find this has real traction?
1: Let's talk about robots briefly. I think there is a tremendous confusion in our discussion about robots and AI and whether robots will become autonomous or have souls or one day will need robotic rights in that at least in some popular conceptions, the difference there is the soul robots are material so they don't have a soul, and indeed you'll find quite a few Christians who might countenance that. I think that's got it completely the wrong way. I think, again, this is a, particularly from Judeo-Christianity, it's a very, very material religion, and you know, we it, the view the soul as somehow as alien to rather, than as it were, an emergent property of our material existence is wrong. If you see that, then there is no a priori reason why robots can't become human in that sense if the soul is an emergent property. I think actually the thing that will enable us to understand whether robots deserve full human rights or because they have a soul is what they do about feeding and excreting, which sounds like a really strange thing to do. But a lot of our soulishness is dependent on our dependency on one another and on our material environment and our fragility and frailty that comes with that. When robots are responsible for feeding themselves and disposing their wastes, and they can pass the Turing test and have a conversation without us potting them that they're made out of silica, I think that's a pretty good argument for treating them as if they were human.
0: How I wonder... Does this land not only in the space of public discourse, but also in the place of personal faith? And if I, can, I wonder if I can ask that question for you yourself, for somebody who has immersed yourself more fully than so many others in this world. Where does this question of science and faith land with you as somebody of faith yourself?
1: You know, I became a Christian in my 20s. I had a completely non-churched family. I'm very loving, but no interest in religion whatsoever. So um, you know, when I came back to university and they found out I'd become an Anglican, they had absolutely no idea what to do. I mean, they were prepared for drugs and women and drink or whatever, but to come back to Church of England was just <laughs> inconceivable, really. But what, what that's also meant is that, you know, my faith is not in my bones. And so I spend as much time asking myself, well, is this really true? As I do, what if it's true? Now, I've got to be honest with you. After having, you know, read and thought about uh, science, using that very generic term for, for, for a long time, there's very little in science that I think has, a, has been a significant challenge to my faith. Not certainly not traditional things, not obviously not the history of the earth, not even the, the theoretical randomness of um, evolution by natural selection, which I think is massively overdrawn. I can see a legitimate scientific view, which is kind of articulated Cosionly, by someone like Dan Dennett, which is actually right down to a molecular level, it's all chance, and therefore agency is an illusion as everything else. I think that I think that could be the case, but it's not an easy one to live with, certainly. um and in fact, even by asking those questions and using words that you actually think mean something, I wonder is it I wonder if you are denying the validity of your own position in that. That's a whole different philosophical debate. but I guess what what I'm saying there is that you know, science is an interlocutor and an interlocutor means you you do have to listen and sometimes you have to be challenged by and sometimes you have to reflect and and reform your your own views so you know it, it, it is like any important area of life you just carry on talking if you finish the conversation fine but it's probably not the most interesting of topics interesting topics just have a habit
0: of running and running and it sounds to me like, for you, the interesting topic that comes out of this from the perspective of science and faith is actually the topic of what it is to be human and what it is to be alive and what it is to think and to be a human being.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I do wonder what would happen if we were wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow. You know, the old Stephen J. Gould argument is, you know, rewind the history of life, rewind the tape of life in a, in a, in a very kind of analogue metaphor and then play it again, you get a completely different picture. Humans are an accident. I'm a huge fan of the work of Simon Conway Morris, who's an evolutionary paleobiologist at Cambridge, who's um, written on how evolution has this habit of of navigating to particular solutions, you know, eyes and uh, teeth and so on and so forth, time and time and time again. Now, I wonder if it uh, navigates to humans was navigate navigated humans again. I suspect if it would do. They wouldn't look necessarily like us, but I think the, the the quintessential difference of humans is that most other species have to adapt because the environment makes them to, makes them. The environment acts on them, selects random mutations by means of which they adapt. We have, for various reasons, developed the cognitive capacity to adapt our environment to us. That means that we are potentially post-evolutionary because we're not being selected repeatedly by our environment. And because, incidentally, we inherit a certain Christian ethic which says the weak shouldn't necessarily go to the war. Therefore, I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, you know, the way life is set up, it's set up with a certain degree of freedom and, 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 and breadth in order to arrive at the kind of species that acts on the environment rather than the other way around, and has a deeply embedded, if imperfectly realised, ethical compass which says you must protect the weak. I think that is a really profound kind of dialogue point and touch point between science and our understanding of the natural world and the evolutionary process, and then religion and our conception of the value of the human, and in particular, in this instance, the value of the weak.
0: That's a uh, thought-provoking, challenging, uh, but also inspiring place, on which you end, Nick Spencer, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast of Kran Mahal within St. John's College, Durham University. This series of Talking Theology on the relationship between science and faith is being brought to you in partnership with the project Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science. For more information about Kran please visit kranmahal.com.